and welcome to Geeks with Shields, your home for all things good and nerdy in this, the darkest timeline. I'm Lord Commander Ulrich, and with me as always is... His shield brother, Axel Wright. How are you doing today, Axel? I'm okay. Ate a bunch of crap food, so I'm a little like... But other than that, I'm doing all right. Ah, <laughs> uh, good to hear. So, you know, a couple weeks back we talked about Dan versus, right? Yeah, I remember. And, you know... A lot of people, you included, have often compared me to Dan. Of course. And, you know, I already told you this story, but we'll share it with our listeners. The other day I had my own, you know, Dan versus moment when I found out that Costco was discontinuing their Polish dog to make room for a more vegan menu. Mm-hmm. Now, I typically don't have any problem with vegans because I just don't interact with that many. But now they're messing with, you know, one of Costco's better things. So I have my own, you know, personal Dan versus and swore vengeance. Understandable. Yeah, so go down to the Dynamite store to try and see, you know, how much it's going to take to blow up Costco. <laughs> Turns out that's not cheap. So uh, Explosives are pricey unless you know how to make homemade explosives, which I totally don't know how to do. No, we, we, we don't know. Anyone listening, this is a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, listeners... If you like this show or just want to help me in my quest for vengeance against vegans and Costco, head on over to our Patreon and donate a dollar. It really goes a long way towards helping the cause. And, you know, it got me thinking. That was a great show. I mean, really kind of an interesting premise. And I know we've talked about it was eventually originally going to be a sitcom. We thought that was really kind of weird. I, I mean, I suppose, yeah. I just can't see that format working in a sitcom. But it got me thinking. We should talk about some good TV shows, because we're in a golden age of TV, right? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, you could say that... I've said for a while that The Sopranos basically kicked off what is the current golden age of television, so sure. So why don't you go ahead and talk, you know, start us off with one of your favorite TV shows. Well, it's funny that we talk about... I, I mentioned The Sopranos when, you know, a lot of my favorite TV shows are pre-that. Like, when I say... So, when I, to be clear, like, when I say The Sopranos kicked off the golden age of television, it's because a lot of the best shows that exist today basically are heavily inspired by that. Things like, you know, Breaking Bad, even Game of Thrones is an adaptation, but, like, the, you know, the style of that. But, you know, my, my favorite shows are ones that, like, were uh, influential on me, right? So, like, one of my favorite shows growing up was uh, an anime called FLCL, also known as Fooly Cooly. Have you ever heard of it? I've heard of this. I don't know why, or probably because you've told me about it at some point. So, first of all, get this right off the bat, Fooly Cooly is only six episodes long, so you could watch the whole thing and still fit in your only six-episode rule. Uh, secondly, it is the epitome of weird, I would say. Well, okay, maybe not the epitome. I've seen some weirder stuff, but it is meant to be a head trip in a lot of ways. Like, it, it is analyzable, and you could, like, look at deeper meanings. The show is largely about, like, what uh, puberty means and the experiences of growing up and the nature of responsibility uh, as, like, an adult versus responsibility as a kid versus responsibility as a teen. Uh, there's a lot of... It also functions in a lot of ways as, like, a critique on other anime, particularly mech anime and things like Evangelion specifically. But, Speaking of a whole lot of gibberish. <laughs> uh, point is that a lot of it is also like, you know, there's more there if you know giant mech anime. But 
all that doesn't really matter because the creator himself has basically come out and said that he wanted to make something you wouldn't have to think too much about. And so it's a show of insanity. <laughs> so like I would totally expect, for instance, if we sat you down to watch it, you'd watch the whole thing because there's only six episodes, and you would look at me and be like, what the fuck did I just watch? <laughs> so it's that kind of experience. Uh, well, you, know, you, got, I, I, you said a lot of things, but I still have no idea what this is about. There's giant robots I, involved, I'm assuming. Okay, okay. Here's the basic plot as best as I can describe it. So there's this town. It's a pretty small Japanese town. There's this kid named Naota who's, I want to say 12. It escapes me right now. And uh, his big brother uh, who we really looked up to is in America playing baseball. And his big brother's ex-girlfriend who's this older girl, like 14 or 15 or something like that, is kind of making weird for lack of a term, advances on him, but that's kind of... Anyway. Yes, you know, Japan. Uh, it's more like Mamimi is her name. She's got her own huge set of mental issues that you don't really find out till episode four. But anyway, other than that, Naoto talks about how, like, life is just boring. Nothing ever exciting happens. And then, on in the first episode, so this, you know, he's off with Mamimi on a bridge, and suddenly this lady uh, on a Vespa, uh, you know, a shows up, hits him in the head with a uh, guitar and then starts like shaking him, saying, talking about something coming out and more insanity happens and then uh, a horn grows from the kid's head. The fuck? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he's trying to hide it because he can like push it into his head and hold it there so he's got like a, a band-aid over it and he's, he doesn't know what the deal is and the lady with the guitar keeps showing up in his life and like trying to hit him again with the guitar and so then by the end of the episode oh by the middle he comes home and she is there and she's moved into his home as like a live-in maid is what she told his dad and his dad's total perv so he's totally into it because she's like this 19-year-old pink-haired kind of awesome rock chick. Uh, but then, like, some crazy shit happens because there's this uh, facility in the town called the Mechanical... Me mechanic. I can't remember the name right now. That, yeah, anyway, um, that looks like a big old, like, iron, like when you iron your clothes, but it's like a big factory shape like that. It starts <laughs> sounding out crazy horns, and then the, the horn on the kid, Naota, on his head, like bursts and a robot comes out of it. <laughs> the uh, hell? Yeah, and then oh, another robot comes out that's the shape of a hand trying to grab the horn, which by the way is a giant metaphor for masturbation at that point. But anyway, um, <laughs> and so then these two robots come out of his head and they start fighting and then the the guitar chick, Haruko Harahara, shows up and she like helps defeat the well, actually, she doesn't help at all. She just smacks one of the robots in the head, and it loses its red color, and suddenly it's docile. By the end of the episode, it's now moved to the house, and is like basically doing laundry and chores and stuff. And now, it, uh, even though all this insanity still happened, he's like, "And yeah, life's pretty boring." And that's just like episode one. So every How did episode, you come across this? It was on uh, Adult Swim. Okay, that makes sense now. Yeah. So like I said, it's it's a show largely about going through puberty and what that's about, but it does it through like insane imagery, a lot of crazy metaphors, and just fun ridiculousness. Uh like there's some um, an episode at one point where 
a robot the size of Godzilla basically comes out of his head, and that robot is a giant hand where each finger has like a gun, <laughs> and it's just like shooting up the town. Meanwhile, Haruko's flying around in a Playboy bunny outfit, talking about uh, conventions, shooting rockets out of her guitar. There, there's a there's a joke where they go into South Park animation style for a second. It's it's an insane show. It's yeah. There's, there's nothing else like it. Not really. I gotta give them credit. While I'm not the biggest fan of anime, the well of creativity does not seem to run dry. Yeah, which is why I'm saying whether you like it or not, considering how short it is, it is really worth your time to to see it at least once, just because it's so unique. <laughs> I, I yeah, that's definitely one I think I would turn to you at the end and go, "What the hell did I just watch?" And it wouldn't be the first time someone responded to me that way, showing them. I, I own the whole thing on DVD, and I bought it years ago, back before they even released it on sets. It was like two episodes a disc, which now seems like crazy expensive, but <clears throat> that's what I did. So, How long yeah. is it like in total? Like, is it half-hour episodes, 45-minute episodes? 22-minute episodes. So 22-minute episodes. Six 22-minute episodes. Huh. Why was it so short? Because... That's just what it was. It was. That's just all the story they had to tell. Uh, yeah, basically. I mean, it's like an OVA, an original video animation. They they weren't trying to make a big long show out of it. They had this story to tell. They told it, and they were done. As simple as that. I mean, now, uh, like fourteen years later, they're coming out with a season two, which I think has already started. I haven't watched that yet, but that's just like extra. If it ends up being good, great. If it ends up being bad whatever the original story was told and complete oh by the way um while all this insanity happens there is this crazy like mythology happening in the background about a space pirate named atomisk who basically like is a, a well of like absorbing crazy energy going to war with the this company whose goal is to basically uh press out all the wrinkles in the universe, including the wrinkles on people's brains so they become docile ser uh, ser uh, servants. So you've got the, you know, the almost immensely powerful symbol of freedom, Atomisk, who's also a symbol of destruction, versus the immensely powerful corporation that represents, like, conformity and uniformity. So all this is happening, like, in the background. <laughs> this very much feels like a show that would have ran on Adult Swim. Well, it did. So it was usually... Late at night, too. It came on at yeah. the morning or something. I can only imagine tuning into this stoned off your ass and just freaking the fuck out. Yeah, I was like, I was like 12 the first time I saw it. And uh, it, <laughs> it really like affected me. It was just this insane insanity that like has heavily affected how I view, th uh, you know, media now, I would say. That explains a lot. But. Talking about wrinkles in the brain, I want to talk about community. Go for it, man. I, I like Fully Cooly is 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 love. Like I love it, but there's only so much you can say about it. You have to experience it. So community has many many seasons. So I'm sure you've got more to say. <laughs> yeah. No, I came to community way after, like maybe a couple years after it had ended, and. I had watched it a couple times when it was on TV, like flipping through the channels, and I saw it, I'm like, oh, this was, it was a random episode. Like, oh, this is weird and kind of interesting, but I have no idea what this is or what time it's on, so I never really caught it again. And then, you know, once it went off the air, everyone started talking about what a great show this was. Hmm. 
So, you know, going through Hulu, it's like community. It's like, well, nothing else on. I'll watch this. And I'm not going to lie. Those first few episodes are really hard to get through. And if it wasn't for my three-episode minimum rule, I wouldn't have gotten into this show. Because we've talked about it before. That first season's rough. Yeah, I think the first season is just not good. Uh, I The second season is gold. But that first season almost entirely is pretty bad, in my opinion. Yeah. And, and no, it, does, it gets better and better. And, you know, there are, certain seasons are better than others. I think maybe season three is probably – three or four are probably some of the better ones. See, I'm in the middle of season three right now, and I haven't gotten back to it because I've been watching other things. So, No, this is one of those shows that I probably go back and rewatch once a year. And That's, Oh, go ahead. Uh, no, and I had no attachment to Dan Harmon before this show. <laughs> Not a Rick and Morty guy. I don't know what else he's done, but it's just and like I said, this is a hilarious, creative, well written show. I think, you know, some of the sight gags and the background jokes in this show are just gold. I think it's funny that I wasn't into community really at all until I listened to Harmon Town and then decided to watch community because, you know, it was a big part of Dan Harmon's career, so they talk about it a lot. No, and I mean, I don't know. Like I said, the creativity. I think this is a really great show. And I mean, I guess we should talk, trail back and talk about the show. Basically, the whole concept of this show is there is this study group in a community college. That's that, it. That's, that's the it. point. <laughs> Anything else is like really episode by episode. Yeah, each of the characters has like a, a fundamental thing that they are. Like, oh, you know, this one is the... Uh, the cool guy, this one is the geek, uh, you know, this one is the ex-jock, but they're really more... Uh, it's funny, because they don't stop being caricatures ever, but they do feel like real people. But... Yeah, and I'd say they're more than caricatures, because, you know, Troy starts out as the jock, but they drop that almost immediately once him and Abed become good friends. Yeah, well, that's kind of what I mean, but he becomes kind of a different kind of caricature then. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, I'm just saying that, like, they really lean into the the thing that each character is. But I feel like Community really started understanding what it was when it started playing around with genre conventions about what oh, a yeah. show could be. Because in season one, it was pretty much just a kind of straightforward comedy drama of about a study group in community college. In season two, they started being like, okay, this episode is going to be a Western. Uh, this episode is going to be like a horror movie. Uh, you know, and they find out creative ways to do that. Like the Western one is one of the most famous ones ever because the in the in universe story is that there's a paintball competition happening, and that the prize is so good that everyone on the campus takes it way too seriously and turns it into like like an old Western. So yeah, and they go full tilt into that. The music, the outfits. Like I said, it really, a lot of these episodes become not parodies of. But representations of the genre. One of my favorite episodes is the second Halloween episode. The first Halloween episode, standard fare. The second Halloween episode is a zombie outbreak. Yeah, and they don't, it, it's like legit zombies. <laughs> yeah, and I was watching, I remember watching this, this is going to be a dream sequence or, you know, something. No, legitimate zombies. And that's what this show does. That's kind of the tone this show has, is when they decide to lean into a premise, they go 110% into that premise. Yeah. I mean, for me, and I don't think this surprises anyone who watches it, and considering I haven't finished the show, it's an unfair 
But I remember watching the episode of Remedial Chaos Theory and just being like shell shocked at how cool of an idea that was. Because Remedial Chaos Theory, for anyone who hasn't seen it, basically has all the characters at like a pizza party at one of their houses, essentially. Abed and Troy got a new apartment. And the pizza guy shows up, his delivery, and no one wants to go, you know, answer the door. So uh, the main, one of the characters is like, okay, I'll throw up this dice, and whoever, uh, whatever it lands on, we count around the table, and that's who goes and does it. So he throws the die, someone goes, story plays out, but then after a few minutes, the story seems to reset back to that die throw, but the die is different, someone else goes, and the story changes. And they go through seven different scenarios that can happen based on that die roll, and it's it was just really brilliant to see, you know, to see yeah. it come out. And this is where we get the darkest timeline joke. True. Since you say it at the beginning of every episode, you might want to mention that. <laughs> yeah, because they this is this is one of my favorite episodes. Because again, this is one of those really weird ones because the story keeps resetting, and you're like, okay, what's going on? And one of these universes, just everything that can go wrong does go wrong. Apartment lights on fire. One of the characters gets shot. Another one loses. Another dies. One loses an arm. Oh, just absolute insanity! And it leads to this running joke of the darkest timeline, which is the worst possible timeline that they had, you know, for their universe. Because at the end of the episode, they're all it, it cuts back into the darkest timeline, and it shows like the aftermath. And Abed, who's the the most you know geek like character says out loud, this must be the darkest timeline, so we should commit to being our evil versions of ourselves and have it as our goal to re-enter the prime timeline and take back our lives. And I've given you all uh, these fake goatees until you can grow your own. Yeah, it was, it was a very good bit. <laughs> no, there's like so many really great bits in that, you know, and a lot of great running jokes. I mean... I am still not a fan of Chang. Yeah. I find him to be really over the top and annoying. Chang is the Spanish teacher in season one who then find out has no degree and in season two. Doesn't speak Spanish. Yeah, doesn't speak Spanish at all. So he just becomes a crazy student. Yeah. No, I wasn't a big fan of him, but again, some of the background jokes with him, like when he lives in the vent chasing the monkey and... No, and this show is also great because a lot of these people went on to, you know, bigger things. I mean, mostly Donald Glover, who has exploded. He got his start in this, and he's friggin' hilarious. Well, I love, if you go back and watch Donald Glover's 2012 comedy special, Weirdo, he starts it off by saying that people come to his shows thinking, like, oh, this is going to be like community. And he's up on stage going, dicks, 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 dicks. So, turns yeah. out. No, this is not Troy and Ahmed in the morning. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, one thing that's interesting to me about Community, though, is I am relatively certain that Chevy Chase just showed up and was himself. So Yeah, and again, I wasn't a huge fan of Chevy Chase's character. I'm actually not a huge fan of Chevy Chase to begin with. Yeah. But in looking into the background of this show, he was a huge asshole and a diva and almost derailed this show on multiple occasions. Well, apparently Chevy Chase has always been legendarily difficult to work with, even when he was, like, you know, getting started. Yeah, but it's funny because they kind of write that into his character. Yeah, totally. No, like I said, I really wish you had finished this show, the, this show so I can talk about the ending, 
because the last two seasons are a bit on the weaker side, mm. but I really like how this show ends because like a lot of the things this show does is it upends a lot of cliches. Yeah. They are very common to sitcoms. I'll take and I think this show's it. ending really, to me, upends one of the worst offenders. And I won't spoil it in case you haven't seen it, but yeah. yeah. The ending well, is really good, and I love this show. Yeah, I know you've wanted to talk about it for a long time, but I know that at least in our uh, peer circle, whatever you want to call it, I wasn't going to say peer group, because not necessarily the people that like we are friends with, but the kind of people who are into the same kind of things we are. I, point is, I know Abed has been particularly influential for a lot of people. Oh uh, yeah, you know, like us, because he's this character who's extremely socially awkward, who's pop culture obsessive, and we watch get to watch him struggle with that while also being true to himself and succeeding. Like it's it's a very empowering character, I'd say. And he's a very he's a good character. He's very compassionate, and he cares about his friends. While also having some of the best jokes. Well, yeah, because <laughs> he gets to be the pop culture character. So I just remember there was—I don't remember what the episode was, but there was some joke about him being a lizard man, and he's just you know strolling around the background, sticking his tongue out and bug eyeing, and this is just a background uh, game. Yeah, I do remember that. <laughs> I don't remember what it is, but it always pops into my head, and I hear Jeff going, "Knock it off, Abed." Yeah, it's good stuff. No, this is a hilarious show. If you haven't seen it, all of it is up on Hulu. Give it a watch. Thank you later. What do you got to talk about next, Axel? Uh, well, the next show I want to talk about, another older one. Um, when I was So when I was young, well, I shouldn't say young. On my 13th birthday, I moved to a new state. And so I didn't really have you know friends or anything. And I, I had one friend that I met like the first day I moved. But this that was it was during summer, uh, right? And so... When I got to school, you know, I'm I'm semi-social. I'm not like super social, but I I made like one or two friends. But I'm not the kind of person to like go out. I wasn't the kind of person to just go out and about. So point is, I would come home every day after school. I'd rode the bus, and I would turn on the TV. And there were only a handful of channels, but it included Animal Planet. And so you know, I'm like I'm like 13 and 14, and I come home every day from school, turn on Animal Planet, and the most extreme was on. It started like right when I got home, so I always got to see it. Uh, do you ever watch that show? Isn't this the one where they test and see what animal can beat another animal? No, no, that was uh, that was did uh, oh man, what was that called? Animal Face Off. That one was all right. That was basically a precursor to Deadliest Warrior. Uh, so yeah. That no, the most extreme was they would take a concept right. And they would count down from ten to one the animals in the world who most exemplify oh, that concept. Yeah, I remember this one. This one was good. It's what got me, I'd say, into loving lists. I mean, we live in the age of the internet. Everyone makes top ten lists. Like, there's a reason why Watch Mojo blew up and Cinefix is awesome. But this is the first like time I really experienced like you know taking fun information and putting it into a list like that that you know counting down so some examples the top 10 strongest animals on the planet the top 10 fastest but it was always relative to the creature right so insects actually won a lot of times i mean for example the 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 fastest one the number two on that list was the peregrine falcon because it can actually fly like 200 miles an hour in a dive 
Well, the number one was the tiger beetle, which can run five miles per hour, but relative to its size, is like a human running about three hundred and fifty miles an hour. So, yeah, I remember that. I remember that exact episode too. I didn't watch a lot of this, but I do remember catching that when it was on, because you always were going to learn something you didn't know. Exactly, because they they made it a point to like. They talk about the animal, but then also talk about like stuff in human society that was related, or you know, that compared to humans. They had interesting, you know, uh, early thousands, late nineties CG to kind of show uh, a lot of how things would look uh, at human scale. But one of the best things for me is that since it was just a show, it was like an educational show. It basically gave me topics of always, I always had something interesting to talk to someone about, right? Because I'm watching this, so if I meet someone new, I could be like, hey, you ever wonder what, like, the best jumping creatures in the world are? <laughs> you know? That, <laughs> I that's just sound- imagine it as an introduction. No, and I don't really care, man. Oh, okay. See, you, you, went, you might think so, but it worked a lot of the times going through school. Like, it would give me oh, great topics. So... I'm just like, imagining, you know, walking up to somebody, hey, my name is, you know, blah, blah, blah. You want to hear about some crazy fast, you know, beetle? No? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, but Maybe usually it was... a way to weed out your, you know, friend group. Oh, you don't care about interesting scientific stuff? Well, fuck you. I don't be friends with you. You know, that is very true. I remember um, uh, watching someone talk about friends, as in the show Friends, you know, Ross, Rachel, Chandler, and whatnot. And basically, anytime Ross tries to, tries to talk about something intellectual, all the rest of them make fun of him by falling asleep and i when i was younger you know i was like i got it but now that i'm older i'm like man his friends are all morons who have no interest in talking about anything interesting (laughs) so anyway point is i yeah i like having conversations about interesting things not just uh mundane shit right i mean it's kind of what we're doing a podcast i suppose (laughs) Uh, we talk about interesting things We we, we talked about how chevy chase was a diva yeah, okay, it depends what you mean by interesting. But point is, The Most Extreme was one of my favorite, like, influential shows growing up. Also, when I was, uh, before I moved, I lived on a state with a coast, and uh, I used to surf when I was living there. Then I moved to an inland state, started watching a crap ton of Animal Planet, mostly The Most Extreme, but also Animals Funding His Home Videos, a lot of Steve Irwin, just... Anything animal, planet, kill of animals. And now I have thalassophobia, which is a massive fear of the ocean and large bodies of water, and I blame Animal Planet for that. So, okay, I was curious how you went from surfing on the ocean to, nope, the ocean's full of devil beasts. You, you got, what's curious? You just explained it. Once I started learning about what lives in the ocean, I didn't want to go there anymore. Do you know how many times sharks got really high up on most extremes lists? Like top 10 killers, top 10 strong senses, you know, top 10 fastest. Oh, that was the Mako shark. But, and then, and then there's stuff like the jellyfish was the number one most venomous creature on the planet. I am still to this day absolutely terrified of jellyfish. Yeah, no, I'll uh, paraphrase Archer when talking about sharks. It's a creature that hasn't evolved in thousands of years. It's an apex predator. That shit's terrifying. Yeah, like, for instance, one fun fact I uh, I learned from the most extreme, it was the most extreme senses. Uh, the sharks are number one because sharks have a sixth sense that allows them to sense electrostatic, like, current. Yeah, so I remember. They- I learned it on that one, too. Yeah, so they can sense the electricity of muscle movements. It's how they 
uh, they said it's the equivalent of you sensing like a double A battery from a mile away. But what's really interesting about it is that because the cells and and that allow them to do that are concentrated like in their nose, hammerhead sharks. That's why their head is shaped like that to maximize the number of cells that can do this. And because of that, it's hypothesized, I'm not sure if it's uh, confirmed at this point, but it's hypothesized that they can sense the actual electromagnetic uh, spectrum of the planet in comparison to their own body. So they have a, a GPS, essentially, and know where they are in reference to the whole planet at all times. Man, I miss when, you know, the educational, the discovery, the National Geographic Naval Planet actually had, you know, educational documentaries on and not pseudo-reality TV. Yeah. Like, world's deadliest animal wrangler, pythons. I'm just like, come on. I get you got to have some of that. But I miss, you know, things like this. Yeah, that's why I watch Animal Planet, to learn about, like, animal facts, right? Like, another one I loved, uh, I think it was Top 10 um, Dangerous or something like that. It was, anyway, it was, uh, you ever heard of the Bombardier Beetle? Yes. Yeah, for those who don't know, the Bombardier Beetle, at least I think it's Beetle, it could be Bombardier Bug, but anyway. Is it's an, a Beetle, I think. Yeah, is a beetle that has three special organs in its abdomen. Two of them contain two different kinds of chemicals. One of them, I believe, is a, a type of hydrogen peroxide. I don't know what the other one is. But the third chamber, essentially, just fo functions as a mixing chamber so that when it's in danger, it takes the these two chemicals, mixes them, causes an exothermic reaction that heats the liquid up to about four to 500 degrees Fahrenheit and then just shoots it out. So, like, I, they, they show this clip of this beetle and this tarantula, and the tarantula is, like, a hundred times larger than this beetle. So the tarantula's going for it, and then you just see, like, some suddenly some steam rising, and the tarantula's, like, touching its face because it's all burnt to hell. <laughs> so. No, I mean, giant bugs are a common trope in sci-fi for a reason, because real-life bugs got some fucked-up shit. Yeah, like I said, insects tended to, num to top that list when you talk about things relatively, like... Uh, the one that gave me nightmares for a while was the top ten bloodsuckers. And, and oh here's, boy. Yeah, here's why. The number two on that list, and keep that in mind, this is the number two, was the flea. And the flea can drink 16 times its body weight in a single sitting. 16. That's pretty impressive and pretty That's scary. That's ridiculous. Right? The number one on that list is the tick, which can drink, yep. which can drink 600 times its body weight. So there was literally no competition. The tick way outpaces the number two on the list. They said it's the equivalent of you sticking your head into a conventional swimming pool and then drinking the whole thing. Now, I hate ticks, man. I grew up around them, and there was nothing nastier than that. Yeah, I'm, I'm terrible. I, I Maybe think that's also... why this show, you know, that's why Animal Planet shifted. All the coastal states were getting tired of people going, no, I know what's in the water now. I ain't going in. Yeah. There's also a reason why I'm terrified of mosquitoes. Because uh, Most Extreme taught me that the mis the mosquito is the number one killer on the planet, and, you know, outside of humans. But mosquitoes carrying malaria have killed more humans than basically any other cause. Yeah, no. Maybe it's better we don't know these things. There's that whole old saying, ignorance is bliss. Yeah, those, those are the terrifying ones. But there are also plenty of the cool ones, like, like I said, the tiger beetle, or ooh, one of my favorites, the top ten smartest creatures on the planet, the... Like the chimpanzee was only number two because number one was like 
the um, the African gray parrot. And there have been some con people contesting this now, but at the time, it was uh, the best example was this 20 year old African gray parrot named Alex, who, you know, had new like over a hundred phrases and seemed to be able to understand like relatively complex concepts could even comprehend the concept of zero, which is something that no other animal has shown the capacity to understand. And it was assumed to have the intelligence of like a five-year-old child. Hmm. Yeah, all my experience with parrots is parrots are assholes. <laughs> you don't and have that to be... because they're super smart enough to know they're being, you know, kept in cages when they can be free. I think that's actually a good point. I never liked the idea of keeping a pet bird because of that. It's like, it's a bird. It's meant to fly. Keeping in a cage seemed cruel to me. But have you watched, uh, Netflix has, it's like 42. No. It's like, this, it's, like it, it's the same thing. Because it was like continent-wise, like, Australia did the 42 most deadly creatures in Australia. Hmm. Huh. Uh, and I watched it. It's really good, and it gave me all sorts of new reasons never to visit that hellhole of a continent. <laughs> all right, well... Before I, I before I leave off this particular uh, topic, which by the way I do want to see Australia, but I agree that it is it's terrifying. Um, I mentioned the whole jellyfish being the venomous. Well, one fun fact that uh, the most extreme taught me, and if this has changed since then, I am not aware of that. But because they had the top ten most venomous and the top ten most poisonous. Top ten, uh, the number one venomous was the jellyfish, uh, box jellyfish, I believe. Number it was the irukandji, which is a Japanese jellyfish. Anyway. But the number one poisonous was the golden poison dart frog, and the and reading uh, about these two creatures, I real I found out that the distinction between an animal that's poisonous and an animal that's venomous is where the uh, deadly toxin comes from. Essentially, a venomous creature creates it within their own body, so like snake venom stuff like that. Whereas a poisonous creature absorbs it from somewhere else. The poison dart frog, for instance, actually gets the chemicals used in its poisonous uh, secretions from eating a certain kind of ant that has it in their body. And we're back to insects being assholes. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But anyway, I think that's an interesting distinction about poison versus venom. Yeah. Uh, see? The more you know. Yeah. And I mean, well, anyway, well, I'm, I'm done talking about the most extreme. <laughs> I could talk about that. <laughs> Literally, I've been talking about it for years, so I could go it on. It was a on. good show. Yeah. So, uh, what what other show do you want to talk about, my friend? All right. Well, this one's got a bit of a story behind it that is really, I think, it feels worth telling. So, I want to talk about Scrubs. Okay. Now, the reason I want to talk about Scrubs is this one was very influential for a multitude of reasons. See, back when I was in high school, for whatever reason, there was a scheduling conflict. I couldn't take. Uh, health class like normal, so I opted to take this online uh, prerequisite health course for becoming an RNA and, you know, stuff like that. And through that, I met people that eventually led me to meeting Axel. Okay. And I got into Scrubs, so, you know, there's that whole fun bit of the story, but I got into Scrubs because the, if I kept taking, you know, going along this course list, I could take EMT training. And... Cool. I started watching the scrub. It's like, well, you know, this is really interesting medical stuff. I might be wanting a doctor someday. And the scrub show is about being a doctor. And, you know, watching scrubs for the longest time was like, okay, if this is anything what a hospital is like, I think I want to be a doctor. Because this show is not only hilarious, but it doesn't pull its punches in the emotional department. Sorry, I'm stuck on thinking about you as a doctor. 
don't know if that's working <laughs> for me. <laughs> no, needless to say, it did not work out that way, but there was a time in my life I was going to be a doctor. Yeah. Well, anyway, I, I adore Scrubs. I, I think that was you know one of the, the best sitcom comedy kind of things uh, for a, in a long period of time. Yeah, no, as again, this is the, one of the other ones I watch, rewatch at least once a year. Now, before I continue, I want to talk about the big problem with this show. It's reliance on the will-they-won't-they they trope. Oh, okay, yeah, sure, I, I can accept that. This, the whole will-they-won't-they they between Elliot and JD ruins this show for me. Like, I love this show but they do not work as a couple. And J.D. passes up so many great relationships just so they can have him go back to, well, he might get back together with Elliot, and it's stupid and it pisses me off. I mean, but tell us how you really feel, Oric. <laughs> I hate this trope. It is lazy, and Friends is the reason it continues because Friends was so successful, and they all go, oh, it was successful because they had a will they, won't they? No, it was successful because it had... I don't like it, but the writing was good. Well, Friends was successful largely because it was good at showing what these people who, in reality, probably shouldn't be friends, but showing them be friendly to each other. And, like, there's a certain kind of, um, I don't know what the opposite of schadenfreude, of vicariousness in that kind of experience. But anyway, yeah, Scrubs. Uh, I, I love a lot about Scrubs, but I do feel like every time the storyline was a, you know, was about JD and Elliot, it really pulled the whole thing down. I mean, the best parts of it for me, like, I love uh, JD and Turk's bromance, but I'm a, I'm a sucker for a good bromance. So, like, well, they are, you know, again, friendship goals right there. Yeah. Uh, I love, I actually find um, Dr. Cox's romantic life way more interesting than basically anyone else's, but that's possibly because I had something of a crush on Jordan. She was awesome. So. <laughs> Well, well-written character and Doctor Cox. If I became a doctor, I'd be a Doctor Cox. I think most people would want to be a Doctor Cox, but wanting and achieving are different things. So, well, I'm not talking, you know, this medical whiz thing, but the angry guy. Sure enough, I was more talking about like one of the things that makes Doctor Cox an interesting character is how he's willing to stand up to what he sees as injustice in the hospital, like bureaucracy. Uh, at, at his own risk very frequently. <laughs> yeah, and that was the thing. I mean, a lot of people I've talked to that are in the medical profession go, this is a fairly accurate depiction of what it's like in a hospital. It's a bit mean-spirited at times, but this is more or less how it really works. Well, I know that um, JD is based off of a real-life doctor named JD who was a yeah. consultant on the show. Right? Yeah, I found out that this uh, was based on a book, or inspired by a book, rather. Oh, I didn't know the book part. I just knew that J.D. was a real person. Yeah, he wrote a book about his experience, you know, the first two years in a hospital, and they picked up, like, this could be an interesting show concept. And the fun thing is, this came out around the same time that Grey's Anatomy was really kicking off. <laughs> and I love the parallels between these two. And they even crack jokes about it. It's like, what do you think this is? Some drama-filled hospital where everyone's constantly falling in and out of romances and might not wake up from a coma. Come on, this is real life. Yeah. <laughs> and then the cutaway gags. This, JD, I have a thing with JD, a whole running thing where JD daydreams and they have these really elaborate, creative cutaway jokes. You know what's funny about that? It, it's, it's yet another example of, like, this is a kind of comedy that 
has its place, but is most made famous by Family Guy, who does it the worst. <laughs> you uh, know? Family Guy took the concept and drove it into the ground. Yeah, but I feel like even with Family Guy, the 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 jokes were so not connected to anything. They were these random, you know, cutaways essentially. Whereas while they were, you know, cutaways in uh, Scrubs, they always felt like very much connected to what was going on in the A story. So they were crazy and whimsical, but they didn't feel superfluous. If that makes sense, especially because it's always a view into, as opposed to Family Guy, where it's a uh, a cutaway to something that supposedly happened, or is ba- basically it always felt like, oh, this is just a funny joke that the writers thought of in Scrubs, since it was always JD's imagination. It was like more a view into what our whimsical narrator see how he sees the world and how he sees the situations he's in. Yeah, no, one of my favorite jokes is JD's, you know, hitting on a girl and he goes into a fantasy and she's a mermaid. And Turk comes up, and he's a fawn, and he's like, JD, you got to hit that. I don't know where, Goat Turk. Show me right there. And then Turk starts hitting on her, like, get away from her. She's my woman, Goat Turk. (laughs) (laughs) I just love that joke, because take that out of context. It makes no sense. In this show, it's hilarious. And one of the other great jokes, and, you know, it's kind of, again, ties back to the podcast. The reason my wife goes by Slagathor is there is a joke where they're talking about the chief of medicine, you know, Bob Kelso, he's getting lazier and he's talking with the interns and he's like, all right, rather than learn all your names, I'm going to call all of the boys Dan and all of the girls Debbie. And one of the girls goes, oh, that works. My name is Debbie. And he goes, all right, well, in the name of fairness, I'll call you Slagathor. Dan's, Debbie's, Slagathor. And she loved that joke. And she took that as her moniker. Well, if it works for her. <laughs> and there's just, or the janitor. Okay, the janitor is actually... I have a problem with the janitor, mostly because uh, it felt like too much. And and here's the thing. I like the idea that in season one that he chooses a new, like, recruit, essentially, and he's hazing them, like, because it's fun for him, but it's also something that, in his warped view, like, benefits the hospital. And so at the end of season one, we get the feeling that, okay, he's going to choose someone else to mercilessly do what he does to. And then he doesn't. He just sticks with JD. Plus, there's the idea that originally they were planning to make him a figment of JD's imagination. That's why well, no yeah, one. Yeah, the whole first season he's supposed to be a stress-induced, you know, nightmare to JD. But they thought yeah. that was too dark. Which I I can accept that, but I I still feel like the the endless focus on JD as his symbol of, or his his well, who he torments was a little. I don't. Know, it got it, it got on my nerves. Haven't you ever had someone you just hated? Um, uh, no, not really. See, I, I was gonna say that's not human, but I know you well enough. Yeah, I, even people and that makes that, sense to me. I guess, but I'm just saying that I, I like the janitor more when the idea, when the it was a different idea. His obsession with JD seems just frustrating to me. I don't know. I like him because you get some great comedy out of him, and. You don't know what to believe about him. And even JD calls him out on that. You have a wife. You don't have a wife. You have a son. You have two sons. You have a brother. You don't have a brother. You have a wife, but she only has a thumb index pinky. You have a mail-order bride. You were adopted by a elderly couple. What about you is true? I don't know. I like the one of the only times it felt like they really came down on who he was is the one where JD sees him in a movie. 
And then at the yeah. end of the episode, he gets him to admit that that's who he was. So He was in The Fugitive. Yeah. And his dad is Arlie Ermey, which explains a lot. Well, yeah. Might be his dad. Possible. <laughs> Likely. It depends on no, how you view. Sure. Yeah. There's a lot of great characters. And they were talking about it on another podcast. And the ethnic diver- the diversity of this cast is amazing. Okay. I, I because am. you have... Hmm? I said, go ahead, man. I have nothing to say about that. <laughs> well, they talked about it. And they, and they probably made a better point than I did. But they talked about, you know, you've got a black doctor. You've got a Latina nurse and their main characters. You've got, you know, all sorts of, you know, different people in your background characters. It's a totally diverse cast. It's not just white people, which at the time was still largely the trend. And even while Turk and Carla have their issues, they start out as a couple and they end the series as a couple. True. And you see all the trials and tribulations a couple goes through, which isn't something you see very often in TV shows. I mean, one of the other big examples would be How I Met Your Mother, but Marshall and Lily are just almost too perfect as a couple. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, you're right, but at least that I feel that's more of a later season problem because I feel like at least the first few seasons they really go into the differences between those two characters. But we're not here to talk about How I Met Your Mother, which has its own whole set of discussions, right? Oh, yeah. At some point we will talk about that because I've got anger for that one as well. No, I love Scrubs. Um... I love the big set pieces. The musical episode, I think, is one of the most ambitious things we've ever seen a sitcom do. Well, I was going to say, we talked about how community played around with genres by like committing to something in a given episode, and Scrubs would do that every now and then, too, and the musical episode is just the best example of it. And a lot of those songs, uh, if I remember correctly, they brought in the guys from Avenue Q to help yeah. them out with it, and uh, it shows, because those are some catchy songs. Oh, yeah. No, there's a couple that still uh, pop into my head. Again, Slagathor loves everything comes down to poo and guy love. Uh, I, my favorite is the, I don't know what it's called, but um, when Carla and Turk are arguing and it's like a salsa-y kind of song. Oh, I'm not Puerto Rican, I'm Dominican. Yeah, that song's amazing. Because Turk can't remember his, and that's a running joke they've had going forever, and I love they kind of fully addressed it out and out. Yeah, yeah that, that was good. No, and Turk, again, he's a great character because and he's, he's well-rounded. He's, you know, very loving and compassionate, but he's also very selfish and kind of dumb. Although I will say that it's not necessarily a... We're, it's because we're talking about Scrubs, but I want to give a credit to... And if another... I'm, I'm sure that, like, the first show that, that was a sitcom to try to do, like, a full musical episode probably happened, like, a long time ago. Like, I would be surprised if someone told me that Roseanne did it or something. But uh, the first one that I know about to do it like that in such a way was probably Buffy. But uh, still. Yeah. And before we, you know, wrap up this topic, I want to talk about the ending. Because I, to me, I know you have a different mind to this, but the ending of a show, for me, can really color my experience with the rest of it. Like, I can't go back and watch How I Met Your Mother now without getting angry because the ending pissed me off so much. All right. But the ending to Scrubs is really, is great, in my opinion. Because it shows what JD thinks his life is going to become, what the future holds for all these characters. And it says, that may not be how it ends, but that's how I want it. That's how I choose to believe it will. So it gives you this open end. If you don't want that to be the ending, fine, it's not the ending. If you want that to be the ending, good. Now you know what happened to everybody. This is their, you know, wrap-up. Sure. I, I, I like uh, closure with my TV series. 
I, yeah, I understand that. I mean, like, I've always said that one of the reasons why Yu Yu Hakusho is my favorite show, like, period, especially for a shonen, is that it actually took the time to put together, like, a 15-episode ending arc and then gave us a last episode that had, like, a satisfactory emotional conclusion for every character. So, and it, and it still makes me tear up to this day. So, yeah, I understand the power of a good conclusion. I just also doesn't, like... Um, a bad conclusion doesn't necessarily hurt my opinion of the rest of the show. Well, like one of the best examples of this that me and you have talked about is Reaper, which is unfair because Reaper got canceled before its time. But the ending that we have is one that I feel like is open-ended enough for me to not like as ascribe too much to it and definitely not to hurt the previous bits of the show. But I know that you, were, for instance, were very upset with it. How Much Your Mother is a similar come thing. come around on it. Oh, we can talk about that soon. I wouldn't mind talking about it because Reaper is amazing. How Much yeah. Mother, similar thing. I, I definitely do not like the ending because I think it's stupid. But I think that you know it came at the end of like seven or eight seasons. I, right? So, yeah. Oh, more. Okay, ten. Whatever. But the point is that there's still plenty of like like those first five seasons are really good sitcom television, and I don't get you know damaged by the fact that I don't like the ending. So. I mean, the best example for me is Dexter, where basically every season after season one is garbage, but I still love season one because it's just it's it's a, it's its own story and is amazing. I, we'll have to do an episode where we talk about good ending, bad ending, and how they affect us. I think that's, there's there, there's shows that really. Like, I haven't seen Lost, but I know a lot of people are mad about that ending. True. Same here. But I will say that in my experience, the discrepancy, the, the distance between good first episode and terrible last episode, it, for me, is Dexter. Like, that's the biggest that I've seen, personally. Like, I'm so filled with loathing over how the direction Dexter went in. <laughs> so. Yeah. All right, so shall we move on to suggestions of the week? Yeah, sure, man. Uh, I was just going to talk about... So, I've had a hard time keeping up with like, the release schedule for our podcast here because I've been taking a lot of trips the last few months, mostly because I've gone to more concerts this year than, like, ever. <laughs> so recently, as in, like, um, mid-June, I want to say. So it was a while ago, actually. I went on a concert or on a trip with my with Marquis. Actually, we went to Salt Lake City, and we saw uh, Ninja Sex Party and Tupperware Remix Party, which is their backup band. And so, I just want to talk about um, those two bands as well as their third band, Starbomb, because all of them are basically the same band, just slightly different. Because for anyone who is a Game Grumps fan, this is all old hat. Everyone knows this, but anyone who isn't, you know, we've got. These three bands, the first one is Tupperware Remix Party. They're these four guys who uh, dress really crazily. And by their own description, they're from the future and also from the 80s and also from outer space and also from Toronto, Canada. And I'm getting old. Uh, their music actually is funny because I considered it like electric, um, like rockish. And then I happened to put a CD on while my, while my mom was in the car and she was like, this is disco. Well, yeah. Really? All right. I mean, I have no problem with disco. I love rock, but I'm not one of those snobs that's like, oh, disco. It's dance music. Dance music is fun. Uh, so yeah, Tupperware Remix Party is kind of like electronic dance music with a very 70s, 80s vibe. Then Ninja Sex Party 
is these two guys who do very like 80s synth music, but their lyrics are all, you know, jokes. It's basically a comedy routine in a song, usually about uh, sex or something related. Like, you know, one of the most famous songs, Dragon Slayer, is literally about a guy at a party trying to impress a girl by telling her bigger and bigger lies, culminating with I slayed a dragon. So, um, and when they when they tour, they actually have Tipper Remix Party as their backup band, which is pretty pretty cool. So we get to see like technically two concerts in one because Tipper Remix Party went out first and played a bunch of their own songs, and then Ninja Sex Party came out and played a bunch of their songs. And then there's Starbomb, which is just Tipper Remix Party plus Ninja Sex Party plus Ego Raptor, who's just uh, you know the other guy in Game Grumps, Aaron uh, Hansen, and they do a video game songs or like no songs that use video games as inspiration you know like mario sonic stuff like that it's just fun a lot of fun music so if for whatever reason any of that sounds relatively interesting to you and you haven't heard about it you know just look up like dragon slayer and if that does anything for you look up the rest i think a better description if you understood the words that axel just said is a cohesive sentence because you're making me feel like your grandpa here going i know he's saying words but i can't follow what the fuck he's saying I'm sorry, what, like, I mean, you were born after the disco era, so, like, you should know what I mean when I say that, and as for, like, the idea of some, of a guy trying to talk up a chick with exaggerated feats, like, how is that something you're not? Yeah, see, I can follow that, and then they got names like Ego Raptor, and what was the other one, Ninja Sex Party? That's the band's name, yeah, Ninja Sex Party. That just makes me feel like, wow, man, I thought Jefferson Starship was a weird name. Well, yeah, I mean, you just proved that there have been weird names in music since forever. Yeah, but Jefferson Starship sucks. True, but... Uh, <laughs> Do not hang your head on Jefferson Starship. I'm not saying, I'm not saying that they don't suck, but I'm, I'm saying that, uh, like, a name... I mean, with Ninja Sex Party, they're literally... One of the guys is dressed up as a ninja, and their songs are about sex and partying. So it's an accurate <laughs> name. Okay. I, like I said, I, I don't keep up with modern trends in music. I, I'm an old school guy. I don't know if it's considered a modern trend. Like I said, all these bands are very retro and sound like they're from the 80s. Oh, well, I'm sure. I mean, we could talk about just Kiss and the inspiration, the instant feel I get in connection to Kiss. All when right. we talk about this. Okay. Crazy costumes, talking about sex, and, you know, subtle manner. Come on, man. That's totally Kiss. Yeah, so there you go. There's no reason. I mean... Uh, Ninja Sex Party is more comedy focused, whereas Kiss was about epic stadium rock, essentially. So, but yeah, I'm just trying to help you pitch it to the older audience. It's like Kiss, folks. <laughs> sure, I, I would say that like Tupperware Mix Party is closer to something like the Bee Gees, but like you know, oh trying, god, so. I hate uh, I'm just saying, like, in style. Like, um, okay, if you want to listen to a Tupperware Remix Party song and, and see, uh, look up Atomic Karate. That would probably be the best one to see if they're your style. For NSP, it would be Dragon Slayer is the best one to look up, probably, I would say. And for Starbomb, uh, I don't know, um, Crashervania, probably, which is a Castlevania song. Anyway, there. There's my three, which are kind of one suggestion. All right. Well... The essence of comedy is suffering, right? That's kind of the accepted wisdom. I disagree with that, but you go ahead. Okay, well, that's the commonly accepted thing I've done. And I stumbled across a comedy, well, not a comedy special. It's a stage show called Wishful Drinking, and it was by Carrie Fisher. Cool. 
and it immediately made me realize we did not appreciate this woman enough while she was alive. Oh, that's definitely true. Because her sense of humor is wickedly sharp yeah. and dark. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, this, it's a stage show, and she's basically just detailing the origins. You know, her life, her life story told through comedy. And there's really sad, heartfelt moments when she talks about, you know, being bipolar and struggling with that and drug addiction. And then there's these hilarious parts where she just goes, like, one of my favorite ones is, you know, you know, I made the mistake of Googling myself the other day. Don't do that, folks. But I Googled that, and the first thing that, you know, popped up was, what the fuck happened to Carrie Fisher? So mm-hmm. I'm like, well, I'm right, I'm right here. What's this? And I clicked on it, read the rest of the link. She used to be so hot, and now she's all old and saggy. And she goes, I'm sorry. I didn't realize when I was 18 years old and I put on that metal bikini that I made a promise to you, the fans, to stay that way forever. Yeah, I've heard that bit. <laughs> it's called gravity. It will happen to you. It's already started with your balls. My boobs are already at the same level as your balls, so you understand how this works. Hmm. And she was, I mean, like I said, she was so hilarious. And she has this big, you know, family tree chart in the background that she keeps going back to. And you're not sure what it's about until it gets to the end. And, you know, she's like, all right, now you've been keeping up with me this entire show. And I'm going to play this to you. And she goes down the entire family tree. And here's my daughter. And on the other side is her boyfriend, who is technically her cousin by marriage. And I want them to get married, if only to complete this fucked up family tree that is mine. All right. It's hilarious because you look at this thing corkscrews and whirls and twirls so many times over. Wishful drink. Hmm? I said wishful drinking. I'm just saying it so I can memorize it. Yes. Like I said, it's hilarious. You learn a lot about her, and it makes, if you don't already, you know, appreciate and realize how funny and talented she was, this will, you know, cement it for you. I mean, one of the, another one of my great jokes is, you know, she's talking about Star Wars, and she's like, I really should kick George in the balls. He, <laughs> I sold him my identity, and he's been profiting off it ever since. I am sub- the only thing that I'm surprised they haven't made is a life-sized Princess Leia sex doll. You can pose me however you want, do whatever you want, and this Princess Leia sex doll slowly lowers down behind her. <laughs> and she goes, oh, look, there it is. How come she's got better tits than I do? <laughs> and again... Oh, I, I gotta see that. That sounds hilarious. It's hilarious, and it's, again, she, has this, she talks about... She pulls no punches because she was bipolar, and she talks about that. And she has this, you know, great joke. She says, I think I'm such a great writer because I'm used to being of two minds because I'm bipolar. One part's telling me to kill myself. One part of me telling me to do drugs. It's a real bitch. <laughs> and she talks about this serious issue, but with so much comedy. And again, well, I just stumbled upon this. You got, well, if you're a Carrie Fisher fan at all, give it a watch. Well, dude, you know me. I mean, my comedic idols were like George Carlin and Christopher Titus. I, I'm of the belief, personally, that stand-up comedy is the most effective means of passive entertainment. I say passive because things like video games are interactive and thus can deliver kind of narratives and things that passive entertainment can't. But stand-up comedy is so very personal because there's not like a narrative in the way. It's just the performer and the audience and performers who use that to work through darkness by molding their darkness into comedy. I feel like is not only is that really effective, but it, it's it's very sincere. And so Christopher Titus had this thing he used to say that uh, maybe he still says it. I don't know. I haven't paid attention in a while. But he says that if you bring an audience down to the dark place, 
then when you bring them back, the laughs will be bigger. And I've taken that as true for most of my life. And that's why when I try to do stand-up comedy, uh, I, you know, modeled after that using the darkness in my own life as, uh, you know, grounds for my comedy. The, the best joke I ever wrote that always got laughs was about when I stabbed my mom's boyfriend when I was six. Like, that sounds really dark out of context, but on stage, I got to laugh every time. <laughs> context is key. So yeah, like, Carrie Fisher is very well known to have had a very dark life, so it doesn't surprise me that she turned it into great comedy. Oh yeah. No, like I gotta say, this is hilarious, and it made me appreciate her even more than I did before. And it really makes me wish that she was still around and that she'd, you know, maybe had... I think she could have a stand-up comedy career, to be honest with you. Yeah. If well, not, I will, well, I will definitely check that out, so... Yeah. All right, so thank you for listening. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a comment down below because then you'd like to hear us talk about in a future podcast. We are now on Twitter and Patreon. Links will be in the description below. If you're listening to us on SoundCloud, be sure to like and follow us there. Also, share it around. The more you share, the more people we you know, get to, the bigger the show becomes, the more we can do. As always, this has been Lord Commander Oric And his shield brother, Axel Wright. Be sure to tune in next time, and as always, stay honorable.